Welcome to LilyPod episode 23, Relationships and Risk in the Mid-Single World. Jeff and Kathy Teichert bringing you another episode of LilyPod, which is a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. We're going to start this podcast with a quote from The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Thank you, Kathy. I think that's a great introduction to our subject today. And I want to begin to talk about relationships and risk in the mid-single world with posing the question, how is building a relationship at midlife the same as building one in your 20s? We're going to talk about the differences too, but one way that I've found is you can still feel Twitterpated. I mean, I, I remember my first relationship where I was really in love, um, and it, when we broke up, it hurt terribly. And I remember telling the girl that, that broke up with me, you know, one thing about this relationship is I've learned I'm capable of still loving deeply and, and you know, feeling that excitement that comes with a new love. Uh, if you're 30 or 40 or 50 years old and you haven't experienced that yet, um, you can look forward to it. A second element, uh, rejection still hurts. Now, Kathy, do you have experience to share on that? Well, I agree. I think we can still feel Twitter-pated when we're older. We can um, still feel hurt by rejection. But I think once you've been through a divorce, it's, it's different. It is less of a thing because, I mean, if you can, if you can get through the rejection of divorce, uh, being turned down for a date is no biggie. Yeah, I, I felt that too. And the... The idea that um, rejection was rejection from a, a serious relationship where I had a lot of my heart invested, that still hurt a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I had relationships like that that didn't work out. I don't I don't think I felt rejected, though. I ju- it just didn't work. And I was sad. I was sad about the loss, um, you know, in some ways, almost some were almost as hurtful or, you know, hurt as much as divorce, but. Oh, yeah. Um, Mine did. Uh, some of them. But yeah, I, I suppose it depends on the quality of the relationship and why it ends. 
Right. And I, I think if you're the one being rejected, so to speak, even if it's not intended as a personal rejection, um, I think if you're that you're on that end of it, you can feel that pain of, you know, wondering if you're good enough or whatever. So I, I, I do agree with Kathy, though. I, you know, it was no biggie to get turned down for a date. Um, and it didn't happen all that often, but, but I when think we're did, talking right now about ways in which we things are the same, right? As in our twenties, right? And, and yeah, and so I think that rejection still hurts, especially if it's a serious relationship. I also think attraction still matters. Uh, y- you might have been in a relationship in a previous marriage or something where the initial attraction was physically you saw this person and thought oh wow he or she is really good looking or whatever and we tend to think that as we mature that doesn't matter as much i I think it still matters oh i think it absolutely matters in fact if you've only ever been with one person for a lot of years and then you start dating uh, i know for me i actually just assumed attraction was a thing you know that that i could be attracted to anyone and I, I discovered that that's not the case, actually. Right. And I've, I've heard um, a very prominent LDS sex therapist, Jennifer Finlayson Fife, say that marrying someone that you know you're not attracted to is a very indecent thing to do uh, to someone because, you know, we all, uh, we want to be wanted. And so I think that is an element of the relationship. Also, I think any relationship at any age begins with one person taking a risk and the other person saying yes. Because we're mature adults, it doesn't necessarily change that. Uh, we, it may be easier for us to take the risk. We may have taken more risks in our life by this time, but it still requires that. Sure. Um, Kathy, do you want to speak to that in terms of women and what risks women can take to help a relationship get going? Well, I think being clear about interest, level of interest, mm-hmm. either be, by being direct or um, going out of your way to facilitate connection with that person. Right. You can even ask someone out. I wasn't shy about that. Right. Many uh, people perpetuate unhealthy relationship patterns from failed relationships or their upbringings. And so if you had relationship patterns in your 20s that were not particularly helpful or you were always attracted to the bad boy or, you know, something, then I think you're likely to carry those into your next relationship if you're not really intentional about it and take a good look at your thoughts and, and what it is you're attracted to and why. Right. Uh, well, and I, I've even heard some mid-singles say that, uh, and I want to kind of go back to the attraction still matters thing, that sometimes so they were attracted to partners that weren't good for them in a really intense physical way, and that when they put that aside and um, decided to let attraction grow more gradually they ended up with a really good person for them Um, right sometimes that intense you know twitter pated attraction 
doesn't always lead to the best relationship. So we want to use our minds and our hearts as well as our, our bodies to determine a good match. Reminds me of the podcast we did with Tim and Annie Bishop. And Annie was very forthright in saying she wasn't attracted to Tim when they first met. And she said, as she thought about it, she realized she had always been attracted to something that was very unhealthy for her. And as she did some work on that and got to know Tim more, she said, now I think he's the most adorable man alive. But, you know, at the right. time, she couldn't um, get past the, the patterns that she had in the past. Right. So even though attraction still matters, it might develop differently depending on if you're trying to create something uh, different than you have in the past. Right. I think it takes a little more intentional effort in some situations, but be honest with yourself about it too. Uh, I will be honest about another thing. I don't like the words creeper and stalker as they are often applied today. Someone who is a stalker is someone, you know, who is covertly going around monitoring somebody else's movements, writing things down about them, spying on them in a sense. And a creeper is someone who's creepy, you know, like a pedophile or something like that. And I think those words are thrown around too much. Uh, Especially in, in the dating world. Right. Uh, and, and let me... And they may be true it, yeah, of some people, of but some very, people. not very often. Honestly. Right. I think very often the difference between a stalker and an attractive romantic guy is whether you want them to like you. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, the guy that would show up at your work with a dozen roses in front of all your whole office, if this is someone you're interested in, wow, he's so romantic. He's so sensitive and kind and look at, and it, if somebody does that, that you're really not interested in, he's a stalker and a creeper. Well, and so the better way to approach that is if someone is paying attention and you don't want that, then you kindly decline their offers. Right. Um, rather than you know, put a label on them. Right. And if you were in that situation, I think rather than calling him a stalker to all your friends, better to pull him out into the hall and say, look, I'm so flattered that you showed up at my office and tried to give me a dozen roses, but, uh, you know, I'm not interested in you that way. And so probably you shouldn't do something like that again. And then if he keeps doing things like that, maybe he is a stalker, but, but when he doesn't know that you're not interested, um, you know, him making romantic gestures is not creepy. It's not stalking. It's, and, and I'm saying this because, Hey, for guys and even for women, I think taking a risk to show interest in someone is hard enough. It, it puts your heart out there. You feel a little vulnerable. And if somebody calls you a stalker for it or a creeper, you know, what is that going to do? That can be really damaging. That can be really hurtful. Yeah. And, and maybe discourage the person from taking interest in somebody that might be interested in him or her. So that's, I want to, I just want to encourage some, you know, we're all in this together. I mean, I, Kathy and I are, are, have found each other, so we're not in that market anymore, but, but we would rest... like to see mid singles be kind and, and courteous to one another. And especially in, you know, these situations where someone's willing to be vulnerable. Right. 
and we've so yeah and we've been there we've been part of that and and you guys are all in this together so be kind even when you're not interested and uh, try not to put negative labels on people uh, you know unless you do unless it is someone who's stalking and then get a restraining order call me on that but <laughs> anyway um yeah, you know, oftentimes I've seen people, particularly women, that when a person's clearly showing his intentions, they might talk to their friends about it, but they don't want to hurt his feelings. And you don't have to like everyone who likes you. We're not saying that. Uh, often you may not. But be honorable in how you handle it. Be forthright with him. Respect his dignity with other people. And that goes the other way, too. If a woman shows interest in a man and he's not interested in return, he doesn't have to pretend he is. Absolutely. And life but, life is hard enough. Um, we don't need to be unkind, you know, in these situations. We can, we can be kind and honest. Right. So think about the words respectful and honorable when it comes to dealing with someone else taking a risk in your direction. Because I think that's... That's a very important thing to think about. Now, how is building a relationship at midlife different? One way, on the whole, I think mid-singles have more trauma. And I did, certainly. Uh, your own trauma affects your dating experience. You may misinterpret or misread as red flags things that are really pretty innocuous. Uh, and... We tend to be pretty fearful because of having been hurt in the past. And that's much more common among mid-singles, I think, than people in their 20s. And the trauma of your partners can affect uh, your mid-single relationships, too. I mean, there, there was one partner I had, a great person, uh, really cared for her a lot. But every time we would start to get really serious she would panic and end the relationship. And we did this over and over, and finally I realized it was probably never going to happen, and I didn't want to continue to go through that. But I think a lot of that was she would see something she would that would trigger her trauma, and she would break up with me. And so trauma that our partners are holding affects us also. Sure. Well, and I, I actually did that for a while too I didn't want to get serious with anyone until I felt like marriage was an option but right. marriage being an option was so scary to me I kept keeping myself in relationships that weren't going to lead there right and I know I, I I didn't realize that until oh gosh maybe a year or two in to really actively dating that I was doing that and I had to deal with that yeah that, so, so that can be a big, I, maybe the biggest factor um, uh, for how re building relationships is different at midlife. It's, that's, a, that's a huge one. And let me say, too, when I say that you're dealing with trauma, I, I don't want you to have the impression that I'm saying you're seriously mentally ill or anything like that. It's a natural thing you know, when your trauma is triggered, you feel endangered and there's a fight or flight response and rejection uh, can trigger that because 
you know, if you think about it in primitive times, getting rejected by your tribe could mean death. And so we are programmed not to want to be rejected, to want to be accepted and loved. And it's, it's a basic survival thing as well as enhancing your quality of life. So if you feel triggered by rejection or by other things that look spooky because of things you've experienced, you know, I don't have any statistics to prove it, but I think that in mid-singles, a certain amount of trauma in the past is at, is near 100%. You know, I was just thinking about how if mid-singles have more trauma, and I agree that they do, I, I know I did, um, let's say college kids in their 20s who have never been married enter into relationships with a certain degree of innocence and right. even na- naivety, I, I suppose. Right. Um, I, I know they, they're, they're intelligent and they can realize that divorce can happen and they may have even experienced it in their own families, but they haven't gone through it. And so there's this fresh um, kind of loving energy in their you know first marriage that either lasts or it doesn't. And um, for for those who it lasts, I mean, it's really wonderful that they were able to go into it and then, you know, learn and grow together. Um, but when it doesn't work, then entering another relationship is, it feels different. Right. It's a, a it, you're coming from a different life experience, a different perspective. I, I think that leads into the next point, too, that... Mid-singles are typically more set in their ways uh, with established family cultures. And I, you know, I can say this from experience. I think we have to be very intentional about creating more flexibility in ourselves to make new relationships work. My way of disciplining my children might have been great for them in the family that I raised them in. But with Kathy, we're dealing with, you know, not a hundred miles different philosophy, but some different ideas. And we have to be flexible to to listen to each other and be willing to change in some respects to create a healthy family dynamic and a healthy relationship. So I think that's, you know, that's important. And, and it's important even in dating because you may have a very fixed idea, you know, that it's, improper to kiss before the third date and you see a red flag when somebody tries to kiss you on the second date and you know maybe realizing that hey you both came from different backgrounds with different ideas well and you also there also might be a difference in what does a kiss mean does it mean we're in a relationship and if if it does to me and it doesn't to you how do we handle that you know and this is why it's important to discuss these things and not make assumptions um, and this would be true, I think, of all mid-singles, whether you're divorced, never married, or, or widowed. Um, you're entering into a, a new world with, with a new person, uh, potentially, and, and that's where we all have to have some flexibility and um, open, open hearts. Yeah, as my relationship developed with Kathy dating... You know, she was um, in so many ways better for me than my first wife had been. 
Uh, and yet, I didn't know her as well. I wasn't as used to her. And sometimes we're comfortable with something that isn't, in the end, really good for us. But we're used to it and we're comfortable with it. It's familiar. And dating a new person is unfamiliar. And so being willing to allow yourself to, to, to try with somebody long enough to get a little more relaxed together uh, you know, can be important. Well, and, you know, if, if in the past the relationship, there's been relationships that weren't healthy, then unfamiliar actually might be a good thing. Could be. And, and that's what Annie Bishop said, you know, referring back to the other podcast episode that, you know, she realized that Tim really was what she wanted uh, if she thought about what was truly important to her and and the attraction followed that. Right. So we've talked about a lot of ways in which um, dating as a mid-single can be a little more challenging, a little more difficult. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, mid-singles really feel a lot more comfortable in their own skin. They've had longer lives to get used to who they are. They, um, I think usually what you see is what you get because the life you've created, the fruits of your labors, so to speak, are, are very apparent. Right. Um, now, not to say that we're not still growing, but we've already For sure, grown yeah. into who we are a lot more. Right. Uh, and so um, you what you see is what you get. Generally, you can take people as they are and um, and then see if your ambitions and your goals and your lives are compatible. Uh, and as we discussed before, we're less likely to be horrified by rejection yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I was a student at BYU, even after my mission, when I could walk up and talk to, you know, start a conversation with any stranger about religion, you think, well, you can do that. You can do anything. I was still terrified of pretty girls. <laughs> I mean, that was harder for me. And uh, I think that's probably true for most people because it's personal. I remember a tall, willowy blonde that I was kind of enamored with for a while in college and and I could you know, I remember the first time I called her to ask her for a date, you know, as soon as she answered, I hung up because I was so nervous. You did. <laughs> and of course, that was the day when we didn't have caller ID. So <laughs> she wouldn't have known. But so I had to wait a little while to call her again. And we went out once. But after that, she kind of told me that, no, I don't think I'm interested. And I remember I just went home to my apartment. I sat on my bed and I stared at the wall for like three hours. I was so horrified that this girl had rejected me. And, you know, as I think about it now, um, that seems kind of silly, but I think when, when you're a young adult and you're not terribly sure of your own value or worth, you don't really know who you are yet, you, you can go a lot on, by, on, on what other people think. And by the time I was in my 40s, you know, if a woman rejected me, it was like, okay, I know that I'm not for everyone. And uh, if she doesn't think I'm for her, that's okay. Next. Well, you know, we're hoping that by the experiences that you've had thus far in life, you have learned how to see your own value. Because right. the thing is, it is there and it is constant and there's no changing it no matter who's rejected you in the past no matter how your marriage went before or real other relationships um our value is is intact always 
and um, hopefully, I mean, really, it's very important, actually, that we see it. Right. Um, in, in order for others, especially those who we would want to be attracted to us, to see it. I know that I played with a lot of different ideas, you know, in that period of time when I was going through a divorce. And it was everything from I started collecting plates and silverware and things for my a new kitchen because I knew we were separating. So I just, it wasn't expensive stuff. It was pretty standard, but it, it allowed me to explore, okay, what do I like? What do, you know, what reflects my personality? And I redecorated my bedroom too, you know, because for the first time in 15 odd years, uh, I didn't have to ask anyone else or get anyone else's permission to do those things. And I think that can be empowering, and I think it's probably pretty common. Uh, I, I've actually read that it's quite common, mm -hmm. and, and I didn't know that at the time, but a lot of people, and some people do it in, in destructive ways. You know, I think I'll take up drinking when I'm 41 or something, but I didn't do that, thankfully. And uh, But I think that, that trying out, trying new personalities on a little bit to see okay, what dishes do I really like? If I don't have to think about what a wife likes, what do I like? Mm -hmm. You know, And that can be really healthy. Yeah. So what's the deal with risk, folks? Um, that's, that's the real key question in this, in this whole discussion. And I want to be very clear about this. For a relationship to begin, someone must risk rejection. A lot of the angst I see, we, we talk all the time about games and dating. When people talk about playing games, they're literally talking about the backflips and schemes we devise trying to find love without risk or to get the other person to, to go first, you know, to take the risk first of revealing their heart. And so there are all kinds of subtle hints that are very subtle, so subtle that nobody could possibly know, uh, because you're always trying to create plausible deniability. And of course, that's not really taking risk. So who wants to take the risk? I've often heard women say, well, men are not men anymore. They, they wait for us to ask them. I don't know that I buy that, but I see the point. Um, and men need to take the risk too. But if you're a woman and you find someone attractive, I mean, this is the 21st century. I think you have a right to go after dating the men that you feel like you would like to also. Definitely. I agree. So anyway, again, people talk about playing games. That's all about trying to find love without risk. Well, and you know, I not only agree, actually, with the concept of women being able to go after the the men they find attractive and they would like to get to know, um, but I also think that it's a it's a good thing for for a woman to be able to have that that choice and not just sit around waiting for a man to show up and show interest and maybe she'll like him and maybe she won't. Right. I mean, I remember being in college. My best friend back then was a girl, actually. And I remember her talking about guys she liked. And she would say all the time, when is this guy going to get a clue? 
And I, one day I just said to her, well, almost without thinking, when you give him one. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, it's funny, but it's true. Um, you know, she was waiting for someone to figure out by osmosis that she was interested uh, because she didn't want to take the risk of just going and saying, when are you going to ask me out? Or, uh, you know, uh, giving, you know, slipping in her phone number or whatever. And uh, I think, you know, the fact that we're in our 40s or 50s or beyond uh, doesn't necessarily change that we're all a little bashful about that kind of stuff. Well, and I think it can kind of take the edge off the fact that you have to take a risk in order to show interest. If you keep in mind something Jeff said really brilliantly in a, an essay he posted in our Facebook group, Love in Later Years, uh, do you remember what it said exactly? It was, uh, you only have to have love work once. Right. Because it it doesn't work until it does. Right. And so every thing that doesn't work along the way is just leading you closer to the one that will work. Right. I've heard women say, yeah, I've tried asking guys out. It never works. Well, it never works until it works. It's the same thing for men. Men could say, I've tried asking women out. It never works. Never worked for me. Well, it doesn't work until it does. And it only has to work once. That's so right. keep trying, you know? Well, I, I guess if you're talking about a first date, it has right. to go beyond that. But but we're talking about that really awesome connection where both of you are interested, where you have, you know, a promising future together. That's the thing that only has to work once. Right. And and that, I think, is life's sweetest reward. I want to say, too, and I, I, I want to be careful to say this um, kindly, but the playing games it's fundamentally not honest. And I'm not saying that it's really malicious or dishonest. I'm just saying that if if I really like someone and I'm trying to find places to run into them so that a conversation might start, or I'm doing backflips to, you know, plan a party for 12 people and invite the one person I really hope will take an interest and see if I can subtly work myself to their part of the room and get them to talk to me without, you know, revealing too much. You know, the kinds of things people do. Uh, have have my friends talk to them, you know. I think those kinds of games are fundamentally not honest. It, it is wanting to find love without expressing our interest. Well, and to some degree, I think it might even include some, some self-deception. Right. Uh, just out of, I guess, really the sheer effort of, of trying all of those things, you might even say to yourself, I'm not that interested. Right. When you really, really are. Right. You, you might be saying it because you're afraid of being rejected or you're afraid of it not working out or getting hurt again or something. Hiding our desires and our true selves is driven by fear, not love. And it really objectifies our prospective dating partner. Uh, I, I read a great book several years ago called The Anatomy of Peace. I've read it a few times, actually. But that, that book defines uh, uh, hearts at war and hearts at peace. And what creates hearts at war is when we objectify other people. 
That means when we look at other people as a means to an end or perhaps as an obstacle to getting what we want. And we can look at uh, a dating partner's decisions as an obstacle to what we want, which is a relationship with them, even if they don't want one with us. And, but I think hiding our desires uh, and hiding how we feel about another person is, is not giving that person the agency, the choice to decide. And how often do we do that and make a decision for the other person about whether they might be interested in us rather than telling them how we feel and letting them decide. Is it okay right now if I just share my feelings about the word dumped? Yes. Okay, because I think it applies. I don't like the word dumped or break up because I believe that once a relationship has been forged, once a connection has been made, it's a, it's a transition of a relationship really truly and i i understand that might not be clear because what does that what what does transitioning mean i I get that that might not be as obvious what it means but for me it means that i'm not going to objectify my dating partners and and put them into a category of well that's an ex in fact i i i intentionally call my former spouse my former spouse because that's you know, I think that's a respectful way of, of terming it um, rather than X or the person who dumped me. Um, I think that uh, anytime we label anyone, it, it can objectify them. Right. And it can divide rather than unify us in our, our dating efforts. And I just, I think being mid-single is hard enough. I right. think it's better to remain kind and friendly. And there have been amazing things happen from relationships that we've been able to continue friendships with. Well, there was one, one man that Kathy dated on, she's probably even thinking of this right now, but he expressed an interest in remaining friends, even though they weren't going to date anymore. And which of course I appreciated because that's always how I preferred it. Right. And so he did remain a friend. A couple of her former dating partners have remained friends. And of course, but, now they're friends to both of us. Right. Uh, and as a couple. And one of those men is marrying a good friend of Kathy's who he met through Kathy. And, you know, her Kathy's view of that is, I think he really met me to meet her. Right. And if and, we had not remained friends, if it had ended badly, if either one of us had labeled it and objectified each other, we would have went our separate ways and that would never happened. Right. And so there is not a reason to have animosity at the end, or at least we hope there's not that nobody's misbehaved so badly that it has to be like Well, and that. you never know why you meet someone. And I'm not right. saying that that happens typically, but I, I do think that there's really wonderful things that can come from, uh, for, from remaining associations. Right. So that's, yeah, that's a really... A really neat thing about about being a mid single is you get to meet lots of people and let's not have every relationship end in pain even even though there may be some pain from not being chosen um, you know let's not laden it with a lot of judgments and you know unkind thoughts well that actually reminds me of one other thing I learned about uh, a relationship that a dating relationship that ended um, not by my choice but by his shortly after he had told me about this idea that 
trees are amazing plants. They take poison and it gives them life. They turn it into life. I mean, think about how we, what we put on our plants and, and it, and they make themselves and it makes them grow. Um, and I remember thinking I could spiral into pain and, uh, constant thinking about this situation and getting upset and frustrated about the details of it. But instead I went and I picked a leaf off a tree and I, I did this thing with this leaf. There's just emotion. I made this quick emotional shift to radical acceptance. Right. And radical acceptance is an awesome way of dealing with any kind of relationship that ends because you took a risk on it and it didn't work out. Radical acceptance saved me from a lot of pain from that particular instance. Now, I didn't always handle everything that way, but if I could have, <laughs> I mean, really, so much trauma would have not, I mean, so much of my trauma was actually my own making and I avoided it in that situation and I highly recommend it. Kathy, do you remember the quote by Marianne Williamson that our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate, it is that we are powerful beyond measure? I do. And and I, the first time, it was just rhetorically such a beautiful quote, the first time I just sort of bought into it. And I got thinking about it more, and I think I don't really agree with it. I, I'm not a bit afraid of being powerful beyond measure. I think our deepest fear is that we're inadequate. And... I think that that fear becomes really poignant to many of us in dating. And I want to tell you the story, and I'm borrowing this from Dr. Greg Bear in his book, Real Love. And it's called The Tale of the Wart King and the Wise Man. And I think the reason for sharing this will become evident in a minute. Once there was a rich and beautiful kingdom that stretched beyond the horizon in all directions. But the prince of that kingdom was very unhappy. He had warts all over his face, and everywhere he went, people teased him and laughed at him. So he mostly stayed in his room, alone and miserable. Upon the death of his father, the prince became king and issued a decree that no one on pain of death would ever laugh at his warts again. But still he stayed in his room, ashamed and alone. On rare occasions that he did go out, he put a cloth bag over his head, which covered his warts, but also made it difficult for him to see. Finally, after many years, the king heard about a wise man living on the top of a nearby mountain. Hoping the wise man could help him, the king climbed the mountain and found the old man sitting under a tree. Taking the bag off his head, the king said, I've come for your help. The wise man looked intently at the king for several long moments and finally said, You have warts on your face. The king was enraged. That was not what he'd climbed all the, that way to hear. No, I don't, he screamed. Ashamed and angry, he put the bag back over his head. Yes, you do, the wise man insisted gently. I'll have you killed, shouted the king. Then call your guards, the wise man said. My guards aren't here, the king shrieked helplessly. I climbed up all the way up this mountain to ask for your help and all you can say is that I have warts on my face how cruel you are 
Angry and frustrated, the king ran from the wise man, falling repeatedly because he couldn't see very well with a bag on his head. Finally, the king fell down a steep slope and into a lake where he began to drown. The wise man jumped in, pulled the king to shore, and took the bag from his head so he could breathe. The king was horrified when he saw the wise man staring at him. You're laughing at me, the king said. Not at all, the wise man replied, smiling. With his eyes fixed on the ground, the king said, The boys in the village laughed at me, and my father was ashamed of me. I'm not one of the boys in the village, the wise man immediately responded, and I'm not your father. That must have been hard for you. Yes, it was, the king admitted with tears in his eyes. But as you can see, I'm not laughing at you and I'm not ashamed of you, the wise man repeated. Somehow being with the wise man did feel different to the king. He looked into the lake and saw his reflection. I really do have a lot of warts. I know, the wise man agreed. And you don't find them disgusting? No, and I don't find my own warts disgusting anymore either. The king noticed for the first time that the wise man also had warts. Why do you not wear a bag over your head? I used to, the old man replied, but with the bag over my head, I couldn't see and I was lonely, so I took it off. Didn't people laugh at you, asked the king? Oh, sure, some did, and I hated that just as you do. But gradually, I found a few people who didn't laugh, and that made me very happy. The king was thrilled. No one had ever looked at his warts without laughing at him or showing their disgust. I think I won't wear the bag when you're around. The wise man smiled. When you go home, you might even leave the bag here. Will I find other people like you who won't think I'm disgusting? The king wondered aloud. The wise man nodded. Of course you will. And with the love of those people, you won't care when other people laugh. The king dropped the bag on the ground and went back to his kingdom, which was far more beautiful, without the bag over his head. And he did find people who didn't mind his warts at all. For the first time in his life, he was very happy. That's an amazing story. And I think that, like the king, most of us have learned that people, on the whole, express their affection less when they see our flaws and our warts. And yet, if we can recognize the truth and be seen, be really seen by another person. And that takes a lot of risk. But to be really seen by another person, and then when that other person accepts you, you know they're accepting you with all your warts, not with a bag over your head, not wearing a mask to cover up who you really are. And as humans, we all have warts. Right. Because we're not perfect, and every relationship will be two humans. Right. With warts and flaws. And yet also divine worth, divine value. Right. And when you go and ask someone for a date, you're effectively taking off your mask and saying, this is me, I'm interested in you. And whatever that means to you, I'd like to go out with you. And if the other person says no, we think, oh, it's the warts, it's the flaws. They see that I'm not as good as I should be or whatever. 
And that, that may not be true. They may just want something different. But most of us have learned that to hide our faults, to hide where we feel sensitive or vulnerable, and yet real love, as the book that I just quoted is called, real love requires us to allow people to see us. Yes, and being willing to be that vulnerable and open leads to the real love uh, because any kind of imitation love that comes from not being who you are, it doesn't last. It can't last. Right. Absolutely true. I, uh, I think this is a good place for us to probably wrap this up. But I want you to know that Uh, that kid that went home and sat in his bed in his apartment at BYU and stared at the wall for three hours. He grew up. And I learned to put myself out there for, for other people when I was dating. And I tried to be my best self, but I also wanted to be known and seen And if somebody was going to reject me because of something they learned about me, they might as well reject me early rather than late. So, you know, I, I think I would love to just bring in just a little bit of a different subject, but on the same line of thinking. Okay. Uh, It, it is, it also takes risks for us to see ourselves clearly. Right. For self-awareness can be, can be rough especially if we're being honest with ourselves about something that was uh, it, it can be it can be difficult to be self-aware when something is hard to, to believe about yourself. Um, but it's really the only way to become empowered to change right and, um, so back, you know, on episode 11, we talk about our FCBO model and it's, it's really a, a narrative therapy. I mean, we didn't make it up, but we did frame it in with words that we thought would be really good for the mid singles community and, um, being able to be honest with yourself and risk seeing yourself requires a lot of compassion, self-compassion in order to do it in a way that will actually motivate change. And so as we get to know people and let them know us, and hopefully they let us know them, um, if we can approach all of that with compassion for the human humanness, you know, in our existence, I mean, we're just, we're all human. We're all human beings trying to get through this life. And I think if we can be compassionate with ourselves and others. It it can be very, very helpful in being able to take those risks. In addition to being compassionate with ourselves, which I think is the first step for sure, we need to give other people a chance to come through for us. So that's something Kathy used to talk about when we were first dating. Um, And in fact, I remember once, one weekend, I was feeling really insecure because of things in the past, not because of anything Kathy really said or did. Um, but I sat down and wrote her an email about it and I would pour it out my heart. I was very 
uh, honest about how insecure I felt. And it was hard to hit the send button on that. But her response was beautiful. And she said she was proud of me for realizing, you know, for, for developing so much self-awareness and things like this. And, you know, I thought first, whew, all right, test passed, you know. And then the second thing I thought was, you know, for her to see this this way, she's unique and special. And one thing Dr. Bear says in this book where he taught, you know, writes about the wart king. He says that we all need a few wise people in our lives, people who can accept us for who we really are. And I've heard Brene Brown talk about that in the context of vulnerability. She says, you know, you don't necessarily have to be vulnerable with everybody, but you have to have a few people that you can really be vulnerable with and let them see everything and know that you're accepted and that the love, the unconditional love of even one person in that way is transformational. And I'm going to plead with you as you're dating. Yeah, you see someone that's really hot and you think, boy, wouldn't that person be fun to kiss, you know? And that's great. I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking that at all. But someone who you can open your heart to and be accepted fully and unconditionally, that is worth its weight in gold. Absolutely. Those are the people you hang on to when you find them. Right. So remember, friends, anytime is the right time for more love in your life. Thank you so much for listening to Love in Later Years, and we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to LilyPod to get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, share with those you love. For more information about our organization and services, visit loveinlateryears.com.